timid when face to face with you, but bold when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word today. Waterloo, Culloden, Gettysburg, Normandy, to name but a few of the most famous battlegrounds in the world, located in different countries, involved in diverse conflicts, yet who could question the monumental nature of the wars waged on these particular stages? But I want to bring your attention this morning to arguably a more significant battleground. It's a lesser-known battleground, and it is uh, located on only a very small plain. Uh, In fact, it it is located to uh, the north of your person, and it lies, I hope, somewhere behind your forehead. It is the battleground of the mind. Now, perhaps some of us this morning have never considered our minds to be a battleground. But Paul, in the passage we've read, clearly sees it so. In verses 4 and 5 of uh, 2 Corinthians 10, he talks to the topic of the intellect, and he uses the imagery of warfare. He speaks of demolishing fortresses of God-defying thought. He talks of taking prisoners, except the prisoners are not people, but thoughts. These images, of course, are a far cry from the cam scenes that we usually associate with the intellect. The serene images of ivory towers and libraries are exchanged for the bullets and the blood of a battlefield. Yet what Paul knows is this, that if we would say to God, take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose, then we must be prepared to fight in our thoughts. We must be ready to forsake pacifism and passivity, and we must engage in this battle between our ears. Many Christians today, sadly, have disengaged from the battle of the mind. Many out with our movement would certainly say so. One of the most frequent criticisms leveled against uh, Bible-believing Christians is that we are not 
a movement of thinkers. We may be simple-hearted people. We may be pious people. But the perception often is we are not thinking people. Even within our movement, this has been observed. Uh, Mark Knoll, an evangelical himself, uh, wrote a book a few years back entitled The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Oz Guinness, in similar vein, wrote a book, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, Why Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. Well, if they are in any way close to the mark, then we may need to think again about the way we think. In any case, uh, we need to open God's Word and hear what He would say about this matter of our minds. Now, with that by way of introduction this morning, we come now to verse 5 in our text. Verse 5, uh, I hope, will be a verse that you will take away today, uh, you will remember and be able to apply in your thought life. I want to suggest that it presents to us two aspects of mental warfare. Two aspects of mental warfare. Paul says, firstly, that there are thoughts to be demolished. And then he says, secondly, there are thoughts to be captured. So let's uh, examine these in turn. First of all, thoughts to be demolished. Look at how Paul begins in verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So in this verse, Paul is a demolition man. And he calls on the Corinthians, he says, we demolish. He calls on the Corinthians to join his demolition team. Now, what must be demolished, Paul says, uh, is not some old house or some tired block of flats, but what he calls arguments and pretensions. Now, evidently, this uh, demolition of these thought structures is no easy task. Uh, Paul says that it will take more than a little huff and puff to blow these arguments down. Indeed, Paul likens them, in verse 4, to strongholds. Now, a stronghold was uh, simply a, a fortress. It was a place of protection. It was a defensive position. The Romans, in Paul's day, were famed for their garrison fortresses. The Jews, likewise, had their fortress uh, down in the south in Masada, in southern Israel. These fortresses were built as places of defense against uh, opposition armies. And in this case, verse 5, uh, Paul says there are structures of thought that are set up like fortresses against the knowledge of God. The picture here is that the knowledge of God is like an army on the attack, and yet there are certain fortresses of thought, certain arguments in people's minds that would resist that knowledge. The knowledge of God means to know God personally, and it also means to know truth about God. But Paul says some people, the moment that they see the knowledge of God coming over the horizon, the moment they see that, they run into fortresses and they bar the doors. 
intellectual fortresses, places of reasoned argument. Such fortresses, of course, uh, are not hard to find in 2009. If you've ever tried to share the good news with people, how often you will have found that not many people say, uh, welcome in to the knowledge of God. Go into the streets of Edinburgh this afternoon. Uh, start sharing the truth about Jesus. And you will discover that there are many intellectual fortresses, all sorts of shapes and sizes. Someone will say to you, uh, why does a good God allow bad things to happen in his world? Many people hide in that intellectual fortress. Maybe it's one that you would hide behind this morning. It's the problem of suffering fortress. As somebody else says, well, surely Jesus cannot be the way, the truth, and the life. How could one religion have all the truth? That's the pluralism fortress. And many people hide within the structure of that argument today. And there's many other fortresses. There's the science fortress. Oh, religion and science are incompatible. There's the the fortress of other religious ideas. Someone says, well, I, I believe in, in the truths of, of new age. And yet what all these fortresses have in common, says Paul, is that one and all, whatever their size, whatever their shape, they stand in defiance to the true knowledge of God. But they can be demolished. That is what Paul is saying in this passage. They may be big and strong, but these fortresses can be taken. Paul understands uh, how we demolish such anti-God thinking. How do you do it? If you're confronted by a big fortress, you're going to need more than just, you know, your hands. You're going to need some weapons in your hands. You're going to need a catapult. You're going to need a battering ram. And if you look back to verse 4, you'll see that Paul understands this. He's been talking there about weapons, weapons that have the power to destroy fortresses. Now, Paul says, don't misunderstand me, I'm not talking about the weapons of this world. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So when someone rejects the Christian message, you don't put a gun to their head and say, might you reconsider that response. True Christian conversion can never come via the tip of a spear. Yes, we use weapons, but they are not the weapons of the world. They are out-of-this-world weapons. Paul actually gives us a list of these over in Ephesians chapter 6. He describes the, the weapons, the spiritual weapons. Truth and righteousness, faith, and salvation, the Word of God, and prayer to the Father God. These weapons may and do look weak in the eyes of the world. A dusty Bible, a simple gospel message, a prayer meeting. Nonetheless, says Paul, they are effective weapons. They have, verse 4, divine power to demolish strongholds. They can utterly dismantle all contrary human arguments to the knowledge of God, demonstrating, even through our weakness, the power of God. 
You know, Paul was a case in point himself. The apostle in his previous life as Saul had hidden for years in the fortress of the thought of Judaism. He was the last person you would have thought would have accepted the gospel intellectually. Jesus and his gospel, however, demolished his fortress. Paul's gospel was, in the world that he lived, something that wasn't likely to be accepted by the masses. The Jews just thought of it as a stumbling block. The Greeks thought of it as lacking wisdom. And yet, amazingly, Paul would go into Jewish situations. He would go into Greek towns. He would preach the simple message, the foolish and unwise message of Christ crucified, and many people would come to faith in Christ. I wonder how deeply we believe that the knowledge of God, found especially in the gospel of God, has the power of God to demolish all other intellectual arguments and strongholds. When that new ager confronts us, when the pluralist confronts us, when the barbing secular intellect comes with what seem to be really clever arguments, do we have the confidence that the truth of the gospel is powerful enough to break through? Paul believed that. We may think and worry that that person that we witness to at work will never be converted to Christ because their fortress seems so strong. Paul says, don't be so sure. No stronghold is too strong for the knowledge of God to break through. No wisdom, no knowledge, no intellectual argument is stronger than the gospel. One commentator summarizes it this way, Paul had supreme confidence in the superiority of the gospel over its intellectual rivals. He really believed that it was possible to conquer contemporary secular ideas by a courageous wielding of the sword of Christian truth. He saw the intellectual opinions and philosophical systems of the world as towers of Babel, arrogant structures built by sinful imaginations of men in defiance of the authority of God. That's what the, the best intellectual arguments are in the world. They're just torturing towers of Babel. Rest assured, the knowledge of God can confute and conquer the fortress thoughts of unbelievers. But not only so. And I think particularly in the context here, the knowledge of God can conquer also the faulty minds of believers. You see, Christians can think poorly. Believers can build fortresses against the truth of God. I wonder if you realize that. Paul here is actually specifically addressing not non-Christians, but Christians. In the Corinthian church, you see, there were some intellectuals who were filling the congregation's mind with non-truths. They were criticizing Paul. They were downing his methods of preaching this simple gospel of Christ crucified. They were teaching wrong theology. For example, they said that because Paul suffered so much, well, he couldn't be a genuine minister of the gospel, which was completely and patently untrue. 
In the context here then, Paul, I think, is talking about demolishing their arguments. He's saying that Christians can have pretensions, which the truth of God, Paul's gospel, has the power to demolish. You see, we cannot assume that because we are a Christian and we have a mind, that we will therefore have a Christian mind in every respect. I don't know what the analogy might be. The Lord Jesus, when we become Christians, he conquers the kingdom of our lives. And there are many fortresses, intellectual fortresses, against the knowledge of God within that kingdom. And the moment we become Christians, as it were, he conquers the biggest fortresses, the tallest, the strongest. The moment we become a Christian, the Bible says that we leave a depraved mind and we receive a renewed mind. And many of those fortresses, like we didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. We believed uh, wrongly that our merit could get us to heaven. We have all these big false towers, and those were demolished the moment we came to Christ. Unfortunately, however, still dotted around the kingdom, there are a few smaller fortresses. There are little bits in our thinking here and there where we are not in alignment with the knowledge of God as it's found in His Word. When we become a Christian, our theology markedly improves, but it still has a long way to go, as is evidenced here by the Corinthian Christians, by these teachers in the church who had set up fortresses of thought which were actually opposing the knowledge of God. I think the application then is in terms of our intellect, we must be ready to seek these fortresses out and tear these fortresses down. You know, if I come uh, to read the Scripture in my quiet time, if I come and I hear the Word preached on a Sunday, and I can see it in the text, if the Bible clearly teaches a truth, and I have some fortress uh, opposing that in my mind, then it's the fortress that has to be demolished. You know, sometimes there are truths that we don't accept because we don't like them emotionally. Uh, it reminds me of a story of uh, a Bible college lecture. The lecture was on the judgment of God. And the lecturer was uh, taking them through the, the doctrine of God's judgment in the Bible, in the class. But there was a man uh, sitting in his chair, and he was squirming all the way through the talk, a Christian. When it came the moment for the questions, he pounced in. He didn't really have a question so much as he had uh, something to say. He said, I'm really uneasy with some of what we've said here about God. He said, I don't like to think about God in terms of his judgment. The way that I like to think of God, dot, dot, dot. He then went on for about three or four minutes explaining the kind of God that he liked to believe in. At the end of his uh, little talk to the class, the lecturer quite firmly said, it was interesting to hear the way that you like to think about God. But what we're concerned about today is not how you would like to think about God, but about God as He actually is, about the Bible as it actually teaches the character of God. How often we build fortresses against truths in the Bible that we just don't like emotionally. And God just keeps knocking on the door. Sometimes He starts banging on the door. Sometimes He busts the door down. 
Friends, if we're going to build a good, robust, and strong theology in our minds, then we need to be willing for some destruction. We need to be willing to demolish with Paul on his demolition team. So our mental warfare demands that some thoughts be demolished because the the minds that we have when we're born are fundamentally anti-God. But as well as this destruction, we move on to a more positive aspect. In the battle of the mind, there's a second aspect of mental warfare. So let's consider thoughts to be captured, thoughts to be captured. Now, this is the logical progression, isn't it? The first half of verse 5 imagines a fortress being stormed, defeated, demolished. What is the next logical step? Well, Paul says in the second half of the verse, prisoners are taken captive. The fortress is stormed. The prisoners are taken captive. In virtually every war, there are prisoners of war. But while those prisoners are invariably people, in this case, what is to be captured, Paul says, are thoughts. At the end of verse 5, Paul says, and we take captive every thought. So this is a further step, isn't it? It's not merely that our erring thoughts are to be demolished. It's that every thought is to be captured. Every single idea which shoots along the circuitry of my brain needs to be arrested. And for what purpose? Paul goes on and tells us that too. Why should our thoughts be captured? Well, he says, to make them obedient to Christ. Christ Jesus is to become the master of our thoughts. Our thoughts, therefore, are not simply our private possession to use as we wish, which is quite a radical notion in a day and age when people so frequently talk about their private thoughts. What goes on inside our heads, we think, is our own business. But this verse tells you and I, Jesus is interested in what we think about. And the question we should therefore be asking about what we think is this. Would this thought please the Master? Would this thought please the Lord Jesus, who is the Master of my thoughts? It's not the preacher this morning. It is Jesus who desires that your every thought be captured and made obedient to Him. And not only every single thought, but especially every sinful thought which comes into our minds. It should not be just allowed to run loose and make rampage. No, if I find myself in an idle moment conjuring up thoughts of bitterness, thoughts perhaps of jealousy, lustful thoughts perhaps, I don't simply shrug my shoulders and say, well, the thought just popped into my head, what can I do? Well, the thought may have just popped into my head, but I am responsible for capturing that thought quickly. If a lion was on the loose in this place today, I would imagine we would try uh, and capture it pretty quickly. Paul says our thoughts shouldn't be just left alone. Some of you even have 
more troubling thoughts that enter your heads, perhaps. It's not unknown for someone who would uh, call themselves a Christian to experience violent thoughts, even suicidal thoughts. These are not beyond possibility. What do we do when such dark thoughts, or in some cases, sinful thoughts, when they come into our mind, do we just let them run amok? Paul says, no, we grasp hold of each of them. We repent of each one. We bring them to Christ. We say, Lord, uh, forgive me for these wayward thoughts and help me subject my mind afresh to you. Now, positively, we'll need to be hearkening what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. Because Paul's counsel there is that we need to take the initiative in our thoughts. We don't just sit around waiting for things to come to mind. Paul says there that we should focus on things that are true and noble and right and pure, what is lovely and admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. For if you're fixing your mind on what is helpful, if you're choosing to do that, then in idle moments, it's more likely that you'll think helpful thoughts. Incidentally, the reverse is true as well. Garbage in, garbage out. I mean, it's one thing for someone to have terrible thoughts of violence. Uh, it's another thing if they're watching lots of violent films all the time, and then they wonder why these thoughts are coming to mind. Yet even with the best will in the world, of course, there will still be those moments of time when even the holiest human mind finds an unholy thought, infiltrating it. Maybe it's late at night. And maybe it's when your mind is tired and you find those thoughts coming in. What do we do? Well, those moments are not the time for passivity. They are not the time for pacifism. They are time for holy war in your mind. We need to fight those thoughts. John Piper uh, gives a typically forthright example uh, of his. And I share this because no doubt this will be a challenge to not a few people here this morning. He says, suppose you are struggling with uh, thoughts of an immoral nature. Listen to what Piper says about taking our thoughts captive. We must not give a sexual image or impulse more than five seconds before we mount a violent counterattack. I mean that, writes Piper, five seconds. In the first two seconds, we shout, no, get out of my head. In the next two seconds, we cry out, God, in the name of Jesus, help me. Good beginning. But then the real battle begins. This is a mind war, he writes. The absolute necessity is to get the image and impulse out of our mind. How? Get a counter image into your mind. Fight, push, strike. Don't ease up. It must be an image that is so powerful that the other image cannot survive. There are lust-destroying images and thoughts. For example, have you ever, in the first five seconds of temptation, demanded of your mind uh, that it look steadfastly at the crucified form of Christ? Picture this. You, you have just experienced temptation. You have five seconds. Now, immediately, demand of your mind. You can do this by the Spirit. Demand of your mind to fix its gaze on Christ and the cross. 
Use all your imaginative power to see his lacerated back. 39 lashes left little flesh intact. He heaves with his breath up and down against the rough vertical beam of the cross. Each breath puts splinters into the lacerations. The Lord gasps. From time to time, he screams out with intolerable pain. He tries to pull away from the wood, and the massive spokes through his wrists rip into the nerve endings, and he he screams again with agony and pushes up with his feet to give some relief to his wrists. But the bones and nerves in his pierced feet crush against each other with anguish, and he screams again. There is no relief. His throat is raw from screaming and thirst. He loses his breath and thinks he is suffocating, and suddenly his body voluntarily gasps for air, and all the injuries unite in pain. In torment, he forgets about the crown of two-inch thorns and throws his head back in desperation, only to hit one of the thorns perpendicular against the crossbeam and drive it half an inch into his skull. His voice reaches a soprano pitch of pain and sobs break over his pain-wracked body as every cry brings more and more pain. Now I am not thinking about the temptation anymore. I am at Calvary. These two images are not compatible. End quote. If some of you want a copy of that, I can give you that later on. I read this at length because it is such a good example of taking every thought captive for Christ. Not only image for image, but particularly using the Word of God to wield against temptation. One great idea is for you to memorize a number of key biblical passages, and at the moment of temptation, or the moment of bitter thoughts perhaps, to start to rehearse those verses immediately. It works, you know. It really does work practically to dispel those thoughts. Well, this is the second thing that Paul says. Many of us are slaves to our thoughts when we should be taking our thoughts and making them slaves to Christ. Not only are thoughts to be demolished, that was the first thing, but secondly, there are thoughts to be captured. And insofar as we engage in this mental battle, insofar as we fight in these two strategies, we will be able to begin to win the war of the mind. Maybe your mind just seems all over the place at the moment. I guarantee you, if you start to allow certain thoughts that are false to be demolished, and if you allow every thought to be taken captive by Christ in this practical way, it will begin to change the way you think you will be able to say, take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you're not uh, a Christian, and therefore some of this seems a little bit foreign to you. I want to say to you this morning, however, that take my intellect can be the cry of an unbeliever today. You know, when someone believes in Jesus, they surrender their whole selves to Jesus. But one aspect of that surrender is that they give Christ their mind. We have a a, a depraved mind, the Bible tells us, as well as every other part of our being. 
But when we come to Christ, we repent of our sin. And repentance actually is the idea of a change of mind. We turn from our godless way of thinking, and we believe in Christ and all that He has done for us. Now, some of you this morning are saying, I I don't want to do that today because I don't want to be a slave in my thoughts to Christ. But I need to tell you today that if you are not a slave in your mind to Christ, you are still a slave in your mind. The Bible tells us that everyone who is not a believer in Jesus is a slave to sin. Your master is sin, and therefore your mind is a slave to sin, to thinking disobedient thoughts. Sin is not a benevolent master. It is a tyrant. And therefore, as we come to slavery in our thoughts to Jesus, it's actually a liberation. Maybe this morning, maybe you've been hiding behind certain fortresses, certain intellectual arguments. Maybe even Christians have debated them with you, and you know that they are rather flimsy. Perhaps this morning, the good news of Jesus, his death for your sins on your behalf, perhaps that will crush those walls today. I pray it would be so. If not, I would ask you this question this morning. What is your objection? What is the fortress that you're hiding behind? We would love to discuss that with you. We'd love to talk it through and give it our best shot in terms of knocking down that fortress. Take my intellect can be the cry of an unbeliever. It should, of course, be the cry and the commitment of a believer. If this sermon achieves no other thing today, I hope it dispels the notion that uh, Christians can leave their brains on standby. I've got a television, and it's left a lot of the time on standby. You know what standby is. It's actually got the power to work, but uh, we're not turning it on. We're not using it. Are our brains on standby? Surely this passage challenges the Christian who says, uh, I'm a simple man. I'm a simple woman with just a few simple beliefs. Don't bother me with too much thinking. Can't think, won't think. It's no longer an acceptable statement. Uh, A friend of mine is a reviewer of uh, Christian books in the United States. And he recently wrote a chastening review of uh, the popular book. I'm sure you've seen it called The Shack. Uh, now, this book, uh, some of you may have read it, it's, it's written in a novel form, and so the author would say that it's not necessarily trying to teach theology, but nonetheless, I think a careful analysis would suggest there is some questionable theology, at least. We'll be very kind about it. That's not the point I want to make this morning. My friend received an email from someone quite upset at his overly intellectual analysis and criticism. Let me just read the email to you. See if you can detect the anti-intellectual emphasis. I am compelled to write to you after reading your review of the shack. I am a simple person who doesn't always understand theological discussions, but after reading the book, I felt touched by God and filled with His love and joy. I do read the Bible every day, not always understanding things like the Trinity, but I have faith that God loves me, and I will understand one day 
I just can't seem to see what is wrong with the book if it touches people's lives as it touched mine. I don't know if it's a true photo of God. But again, it brought me closer to him, and that can't be bad. So many times I feel we get lost in discussions and don't just get close to the simple facts that God loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. That's all I need to know. Everything else I will leave in God's hands. I wonder this morning whether you would agree with that sentiment. With the greatest of respect, I think that if that was all God wanted us to know, he wouldn't have given us such a big book as the Bible. He wouldn't have disclosed even more about himself than the greatness of his love. And he probably wouldn't have given us a brain. He just would have given us a heart to feel, not a head to think. God gave us an intellect. May he take our intellect and use it for his glory. Let's pray.